Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, guys. Welcome to the next episode of the John Podcast. And this is actually uh, one of these special episodes that we get, well, every once in a while where I was at an event. This was the Challenger 75 in Danderit, Sweden, very, very close to Stockholm. And we get some extra content out of that. We will have like eight short interviews, I think, in this episode. So yeah, um, I hope you're excited for that. And this was actually my last Challenger trip of the season. Uh, My first time in Sweden as well. I did enjoy it thoroughly. Uh, the Good to Great um, Academy, which is where the, the event is held, is like a very modern, very fresh um, venue. Uh, the facilities are amazing. I actually was really, um, you know, found them really beautiful. I, I, I knew this place existed because Kamil Maikshak trained for a while there with Joachim Nestrom. Um, the Nestrom is one of the few Swedish legends that are involved with this academy um, along with Tilström, along with Kulti and especially you know the, the one that we're sort of still very familiar with Magnus Norman um, who of course after his playing career also uh, made his name by uh, being Stan Wawrinka's coach and getting him to be the monster that he was and still is to an extent. Uh, Magnus Norman was actually the tournament director as well in, uh, in Danderit and um, well sometimes I would sort of race him uh, to the players because the tournament was doing some interviews themselves as well, posting them on some social media. I think I don't really have Instagram, but I'm assuming that uh, that that was where they were posting that. So I even raced Magnus Norman to to a couple of players this week. That's uh, that's the extent of my experience in in the Dead. But no, it was it was really fun. Um, kind of low key, honestly, in terms of the audience size and in terms of the fact that. For some reason, like even though there were some big names, like David Goffin, for example, right? People wouldn't really like come up to him for autographs, photos, or something. I'm, I was kind of surprised by that because, like, I don't know if you if you get David Goffin in Poland, I mean, it would be massive. I mean, everyone would want a photo of him. But I guess it's just the fact that um, Sweden has these two ATP 250s, right? Every year, Bostad, Stockholm. So I guess they are sort of used to. Um, having names like this, um, you know, around them, and also, of course, such a such a tennis tradition in the country. So even though they might not have, you know, extremely promising youngsters right now, maybe outside of Max Dalin, I heard from uh, from actually a couple of Swedes that I met, uh, a couple of um, of my Twitter followers who just came up to me in the crowd and said, "Hey, uh, Damien," and I'm like, "Oh, yeah." And um, yeah, we, we chatted for a while. They also said that Sebastian Eriksson is someone they um, they are definitely holding in high regard and are expecting something from. Uh, but yeah, even though right now maybe Swedish tennis isn't at its strongest, I think that probably plays a part in, in what I was just talking about as well. Uh, yeah, but as a whole, I mean, obviously a very enjoyable event, um, very high quality despite the number of withdrawals that we had before um, before the tournament began well before the draw was even made 
And um, yeah, still, uh, I got a couple of really incredible viewing experiences out of this week, which I think I'm just going to talk about, you know, midway through the show uh, when we're discussing, you know, certain players and etc. That's when I'm going to mention, you know, the specifics of that. But as a whole, um, this was my eighth challenger trip of the year. My last one, I'm not going to be traveling anywhere in the next two weeks because we are you know, we, are, we have just two weeks of challengers left. And um, yeah, that was eight in 2023, which is one more than in 2022. So at least that's progress, right? And I visited um, three Polish challengers plus five uh, foreign trips uh, to um, Lithuania, Hungary, Italy, Sweden and Germany. Uh, yeah, very excited about what I saw. Uh, five surfaces, kind of, which is pretty interesting because I saw, an, in, uh, of course, carpet in Ismaning and then clay hard and then indoor hard and indoor clay. <laughs> but it's not obvious, I guess, to see indoor clay because we only have two events right now, Sekeshvehervar and Maya. Sekeshvehervar, you know, it was it, its first year and that's, that's where I came. Uh, that, that's where I saw an indoor clay event. And outdoor hard in Europe is, is also not that easy to encounter. I mean, France, Spain, Italy, yeah, but um, sort of in my part of Europe, it's actually not that easy. But of course, Koserki has had um, an, an outdoor hardcore challenger since 2022. And uh, yeah, let's just get down to business. We actually had five challengers this week. We are, of course, going to start with Danterit. But um, four of them were 75s, one of them was a 100 and it actually wasn't Dandered, it was Montevideo. Uh, but again, since uh, since I wasn't Dandered and we have all the extra content from there, as usual, we will just start with that one. And Maximilian Marterer won his uh, ninth challenger title, beating Brandon Nakashima in the final. Let's just, you know, delve into, into Marterer at first. Um, we just recently had him on the show, right? And he actually is appearing here on the for the third time because I talked to him in Braunschweig 2022 and in Ismaning 2023, just two weeks ago. And um, I guess with, you're not going to hear it on the interview, but uh, I, I will just tell you sort of as like added context that when Marterer saw me in that day, he was very surprised. You know, these guys are not used to someone traveling the Challenger circuit, which, you know, admittedly, I might be the only person doing that. Uh, I mean, I know there's, a, there's like one or two more people maybe, but... Um, yeah, uh, definitely quite rare for, for him to um, talk to someone in Ismaning and then, you know, again, the week after, in uh, well, two weeks after in Danderit. Um, but anyway, so, you know, um, I just basically posed like two or three questions to him uh, because, well, we had him in Ismaning and, and sort of many of uh, many of the aspects that I sort of big picture um, talked to him about in Ismaning were still very relevant to this day. Anyway, let's let's just get the interview done now. Uh, anyway, uh, so Servant Volleyer is pretty rare on the tour right now, but you've played Belier in Spain, now you've played Cressy, how do you, you know, handle that, that sort of play stuff? Yeah, obviously you're not, not feeling too comfortable sometimes, so... Uh... Yeah, I mean, the, the break I did in the first set was, was really good. I did some really good returns and all the passings that made me win the set. A um, little bit uh, mad about me that I slept at the beginning of the second set and I didn't want to do the same in the third set, which was good that I helped serve there. And it was a little bit crucial as well. Um, but yeah, it's just, like you, you don't get many chances. And the chances I had, I, I used most of them, so I'm really happy with that. 
and this has been a very good month for you, 12 and 3 in your last 15 matches, you know, just overall yeah. your, your take on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I take it, I mean, I just want to keep it going, riding, riding the wave I'm, I'm on right now, and uh, let's see how far I can go here and under it. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Marterer, I mean, what a patch of play, really. Um, since Antwerp, since making that semi-finals out of the qualifying, and like, like, I like barely remember watching some of that Antwerp qualifying run and thinking he, wow, he's he's re playing so well. And I was like, um, well, the Antwerp courts must suit him. And I think that's what a lot of people on tennis Twitter were also saying. And well, that is true, but it also coincided with just a massive spike of form for him. It, it wasn't completely out of nowhere either, because he had that Amersfoort title in July. Of course, yeah, he's now won two titles uh, this year. Even Wimbledon, I guess, qualifying and making the third round. But yeah, just generally the second half of the season has been very strong for Marterer, and uh, especially since Antwerp, so like the last month or so. Uh, semi-finals at the ATP 215, Antwerp final in Ismaning and the Challenger, and now the title in Danderit. It was kind of close for him not to get the title, and I think it would be pretty disappointing if in this last month, you know, he lost both challenger finals. Uh, but eventually he beats Oscar Otte, Artur Ferry, Maxim Kresi. That was a third setter, and actually the second set from Marterer was one of the... Well, that, that was also the match after which we talked, um, as you as you probably heard, and uh, since, since I mentioned Kresi there. And uh, basically the second set there was like the worst I've seen Marterer play in a month, at least. <laughs> because um, he just had a couple of games where he was just spraying the plus one forehand. And the main thing about him recently is that, well, he's a plus serve plus one forehand monster, absolutely. But at the same time, he actually has a real baseline game. And that's something that I also talked to uh, talk, talk to one of these Swedish followers of mine that I said um, I met in the Dunderit crowds. Um, I, I remember chatting with one of them about Marterer. Like he, he was literally saying the same things as as we discussed on the show in um, you know after Ismaning, that what made him so dangerous on these carpet courts in Germany was just the fact that all the other big servers had some sort of a disadvantage in their you know other parts of the game, whereas Marter he actually can beat you off the ground as well. He has really good rally tolerance, so um, yeah, I think that that makes him a very very dangerous player when he's on such a, you know, high, rich vein of form. And um, yeah, just this second set against Cressy was like so sloppy, but he managed to recover well for the decider, so it was all okay. Then he demolishes Koboli in the semifinals. Um, maybe I'm going to mention that matchup more when I'm, when I'm going to be talking about Koboli. And uh, yeah, the final against Nakashima, we can talk about that here. I actually didn't watch it live. This was uh, my only, the only day of the event where I wasn't there. I was already back home in, uh, well, actually trying to get to get back to my uh, hometown, I guess. But but I was already in Poland anyway. Um, so uh, Marteret went down two six. But honestly, it from the very beginning, it kind of felt like he is the first opponent this week who can really go like just trade blows with Nakashima and not come out defeated. And he managed to eventually make really, uh, just constantly make inroads on the Nakashima serve. Up until a certain moment, he was like 0-8 on breakpoints. So it was really hurting him. And I thought that maybe he's going to lose it. Like, you know, just suddenly drop, a, drop, a, drop his serve in the middle of the second set after missing so many chances. But he managed not to do that. 
He then broke in the third as well. He saved the breakpoints that Nakashima had at like 4-2, two, 2 4 down in the third. And he manages to win the title. I think this should be enough for a top 100 finish. I am sort of surprised that he still wants to play Valencia after that because, yeah, it seems to me like the top 100 should be secured, but who knows. Um, of course, recently he returned to the top 100 after like four and a half years, which is a big storyline. And um, yeah, even though his quality probably hasn't dipped all that much from when he was in the top 50 many years back, uh, he kind of took a long while to return. But uh, it's good that he's here now. And yeah, last month, absolutely unbelievable and I'm, I'm glad that I've uh, been able to watch him so much I mean eight matches over the past three weeks um, alive I mean um, yeah and that's uh, that's it for Maximilian Martere let's talk about Brandon Nakashima then who was in the final here and um, yeah maybe let's just start with the interview and I'm actually going to mention that um, one of the big storylines this week regarding him there yeah, so most of the year you were competing on the main tour, now you're playing challengers, but honestly with the strength of these events that you've been in, Bergamo, Brest, here, it's probably not that much of the difference, right? Yeah, I mean, all the challengers, you know, there, there's all these good level players uh, wanting to get points and, you know, competing in these events, so um, yeah, like you said, you know, these, these tournaments are, you know, pretty similar level to, to ATP events, um, you know, you can see all the, the top players that have been been ranked high, um, you know, competing in these events. So it's nice to see um, all these all these players playing at a good level in these tournaments. Are you monitoring at all the USDA Australian Open Wildcard Challenge? Because with like a big result this week, and especially if Mickelson would get in automatically, you still could earn your major um, spot there. Yeah, I actually haven't thought about it too much. Um, yeah, just trying to focus on, you know, one match at a time here, you know, trying to play well in all these matches, and then, you know, whatever happens, whatever the result here, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. And ever since the draw came out, I was already looking at that Goffel Nakashima quarter uh -huh. as like, okay, I would love to see that. Are you also excited by the premise of that? Match? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to play him again. Um, you know, another another guy that's been at the top of the game uh, a while back and, you know, still playing very good tennis right now. So uh, it's going to be an exciting match. Uh, I think we'll both play well and, um, yeah, it should be exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck tomorrow. Yeah, and the thing with Brandon Nakashima, as you could hear me talking about the USDA um, wildcard challenge for the Australian Open, around the time when I was talking to him, so that was after the EFCAF, I think, uh, second round win, uh, we didn't have like the full knowledge right, of what was going to happen because so many players were still alive in the race. Whereas actually, Brandon Nakashima, as it turns out, uh, because Alex Mickelson won the USDA race in the end and it looks very likely that Mickelson should be able to get into the Australian Open main draw there was a time in my life when I would have said yeah he, he is in the Australian Open main draw but I just have this PTSD from last year when we were all screaming that okay Alicia Parks with these back-to-back -back one two one two five titles of course that's on the women's side but it's not that much of a difference uh, that with these back-to-back -back 125 titles, she managed to make it into the Australian Open main draw. And then even with a ranking of sub-100, she actually doesn't make it in the end. I think she was like 96, 97, and she was, you know, of course, the top seed in the qualifying eventually. Uh, but but um, that, that I think, was uh, actually maybe the second seed after Noshkova. But it doesn't, doesn't matter. 
anyway, what I'm trying to say is that even with a ranking on the cutoff of like 96 or 7, she didn't make it. So that's why I'm basically, you know, just a little cautious relating to that. But we shall see. But anyway, with Brandon Nakashima, yeah, the USDA challenge, Alex Mikkelsen won it. But that means it goes to the second place if he gets in automatically. Nakashima would have been in the second place if he beat Marterer in the final. So from that angle, kind of disappointing for Brandon. He also decided to finish his season in Dunderit. But I think, you know, the wildcard challenge probably wasn't too much of a priority for him in the first place because he would have played in the States, I think, if it was. Because that's when you can really gain points. I mean, the events that Nakashima played in Europe recently, I mean, they were so high quality. Like, he gets Gasquet in the opening round, for example, in Brest. Or he plays a set of opponents like Draper, Fonini, Brody, Kukushkin in Bergamo, right? I mean, only, like, real veterans and um, established players. Here, maybe a little weaker, but still, I mean, he plays David Goffin in the quarterfinals. He doesn't drop a set until the final... And I think there were a lot of matches this week when he just had like too much consistent weight of shot, um, just hitting hard, deep, heavy all the time. Of course, that trademark back, trademark backhand, beautiful to watch live. This was my first time watching uh, Brandon live. And um, yeah, especially Goffin blocks, I feel like he really defeated by the virtue of just not allowing them to have fun with their more timing-oriented attacking games. Marterer actually could trade blows with him, as I said, and eventually managed to come out on top. And yeah, it's just disappointing for Nakashima for sure, because he doesn't get that USTA Australian Open wildcard. That's that's the only real negative from this week, because otherwise, of course, that's that's good for him that he reached the final in, in a high quality event and lost a very good match uh, to um, an informed player for sure. And he also withdrew from the Japanese challengers, Yokohama and Yokaichi, that we have coming up. So this was actually Nakashima's last event of the season. And um, yeah, but but still, uh, one one more thing I guess about him is that I think this, this gives you uh, at least a little bit of hope for 2024, right? Uh, he had a terrible campaign, yes, but he looks like he's going to recover from it. Someone that had a ridiculous run. And I, I mean it. And that was actually one of my best viewing experiences watching tennis um, live, I think, ever. One of his matches here is Alexander Blocks, uh, the 2023 Australian Open junior champ, who obviously had a few main tour experiences already. Well, one in the main draw, a few in the qual- at the qualifying. This year in Miami, he lost to Watanuki. He also played Antwerp last year, I think. But this year in Antwerp, he made headlines because he beats Medjedovic in the first qualifying round. That was a shocker. He beats Bailly in the in this uh, all-Belgian youngster battle and then loses to Hanfman. But it was a decent match, really. And from that point onwards, after that... Actually, let's let's do the interview because I think... Th- this is, by the way, very early in the event. This is after he beats Billy Harris in the final qualifying round. So um, I'm glad that it sort of got to him early because, of course, later he was such a big story. Not that that anyone but the tournament and me would would talk to him because there weren't really any other journalists. But still, (laughs) anyway, let's let's do the interview now. What a battle. I mean, you played the top seed here in the qualifying and also both both him and you, you were in great form. So, um, yeah, that must be a great win for you. Um, yes, I am, um, of course, happy with the win today, but I think uh, I didn't play my best tennis uh, that I've played in the last couple of weeks. 
but uh, I fought for every point and I think that was a uh, key today so was part of that the knee issue that you had in the second uh, set? yeah I I lost the point and I hit myself but not not very hard just like like to to wake me up a bit you know but I I hit it myself a bit wrong in the wrong place like uh, in the muscle and it got a bit tight afterwards I think it's kind of kind of a protection uh, mm -hmm. reaction for my uh, muscle so yeah I need to uh, take care of it and uh, be ready for the main draw. And you recently had that great performance in Antwerp and you actually haven't lost since so is that you know part of that the confidence that you picked up? Uh, yeah actually now you say it uh, I haven't lost a match that's true but uh, I wouldn't say I, I had it easy it was uh, really tough weeks really hard battles every match basically and uh, I think if you mentally just keep going even I lost the second set today it doesn't matter you just have to keep going and uh, if you win you win if you lose then you try it you know but uh, it's important to give everything so thank you yeah, good luck in the major yeah and actually since Antwerp he uh, hadn't lost until Danderit he won two back-to-back uh, -back 25k titles in the UK very strong events actually I mean he beats guys like Colson Roy Royer uh, Henry Serrell, the Wimbledon champ, I guess, I guess not yet, uh, you know, that strong, but still that was a fun twist, you know, that he beat um, another um, Grand Slam Junior title, titleist from this year, but also Samuel, Santian, um, Stewart, yeah, just, just a very strong field in both these 25Ks, uh, these were his first pro titles, and then he comes to Dunderit, and this is actually his first challenger ever, regardless, you know, main draw qualies, first challenger ever. So I was already very excited for um, to, to see Blogs because I had never watched him live. And that match against Harris, certainly the final qualifying round, that was something that um, when I saw the draw, I was like, oh, I would love to see that. So I was there. Um, I, I agree with him that it actually wasn't as high quality as I expected it to be, but it still delivered on the entertainment. And um, yeah, by the time he made the main draw, it was certainly a big opportunity for him. He beats Maximilian Neugrist from 2-5 down in the third in a match where he really showed a ton of cracks in terms of, like, experience. Um, Neugrist, you know, he has this kind of tricky, I would say, mixture of grinding and big serve. We've been seeing that playstyle quite a lot on the tour recently, like someone like Hugo Grenier is probably one of the main representatives, right? But, like, Neugrist, sometimes he's going to serve and volley you and sometimes he's just going to grind you down uh, with his slice and he was doing that to blocks he was like mixing it up to, against blocks very effectively until 2-5 it seemed like the youngster will not have the awareness and shot selection to prevail but he actually made Neukrist play on that uh, game where Maximilian was trying to serve it out and he um, yeah he, he, he actually managed to outplay him like this just allow him to make the errors suddenly cut down on his own and eventually won the third set tiebreak and of course, I'm very glad that he did because he um, managed to get me this incredible experience of watching him against Mute in the second round. Corentin Mute, um, by the way, tweeted after that even. Um, he actually quote tweeted a video that I posted from that match and said that, you know, he tried, but that blocks was just too good, too, just amazing. And um, yeah, that was really it. Like, um, honestly, I, I don't know if I've ever felt like this watching a match, but I, I really felt like I saw you know, a bit of a, a star is born moment 
of course there's been many like this for blocks i guess already you know you could go back to the making beating Majedovic in antwerp you could go back to australia of course you could go back to the 225k ski one but this one against mute i mean the shot making in the, that match and even in the second set you know it was a two setter seven six six one but even the second set was fabulous to watch Blogs just blasting his forehand, crashing through the Mute slices, going to the net so much. And he had his issues there, like it wasn't easy for him, especially against someone with such hand skills and also such speed as Corentin Mute. But he actually manages to beat the Frenchman. And um, yeah, I, I just think the, the performance there was absolutely spectacular. Um, you cannot really do better, I think, against someone like Mute and also... Uh, like someone who really makes you play and also as a as a sort of inexperienced youngster i know he's had his he, he had some issues you know closing down the points uh, but that's normal like just the fact that he was still able to hold up keep going keep playing keep going for the same tactics keep you know doing the right stuff and yeah just come up with one ridiculous shot after another and um yeah that that after that, you know, I, I basically spent like the next 20 minutes just walking around the venue and I didn't really know um, what I was even doing, where I was even, you know, what my goal was. It was just like one of these matches where 30 minutes after it, it, it already ends, you're still thinking about it and like you cannot focus on the next one. You cannot focus on anything else, really. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I was really visibly shaken by this performance from both actually Blocks and Mute. I mean, Mute was a vital actor in this in this second round encounter, but um, certainly um, Blocks was the one who made it as special as it was. And yeah, I, I, I honestly think he's a, he's a ridiculous prospect. I don't know if I was already there at, in Australia. I was kind of already there in Antwerp. But after watching him in Tandere, Jesus Christ. I mean, this guy in like two years is going to be in the top 100. That's all I'm going to say. And uh, yeah, we had the um, Belgian former GOAT, sort of, David Gouffeu. I think, yeah, Blocks will probably um, very quickly... Um, you know, excel enough to really be on top of the younger Ger uh, Belgian generation. I guess in terms of like their talents right now, it's still probably Zizou first. I think, you know, in a few years, we might definitely be talking about Alexander Blocks as the, as the prime talent of that generation. And yeah, just ridiculous already. And I um, I'm so excited to see more from him. Of course, he had a letdown in the semis against Nakashima, but yeah, everyone has it. I mean, every single tennis player, every single youngster has to sort of go through these matches as well. And as I said earlier, I think just, just how hard and deep and heavy Nakashima was hitting at him, I think that really limited his ability to attack quite a lot. And um, yeah, just made it a nightmare for him in the rallies. It was a very good showing from Nakashima and blocks certainly just a, a total letdown after the 15-match win streak that he was on. But um, still, ridiculous week to, to reach the semis in your first challenger event. Main draw or qualies, that's a very good feat. I think recent years, I remember Shevchenko doing that in Poznań, although Shevchenko was like two years older than blocks at the time. Of course, a very different track of progress as well. I mean, Shevchenko barely played juniors. Um, yeah, no one really 
had an idea that he was going to be this good. Like, I, I had it when I saw him in Poznan, but like before then, of course, you know, he wasn't perceived as a, as a huge prospect. And uh, Stricker won Lugano uh, when it was his second challenger appearance, which is more comparable to Blocks, right? Uh, since Stricker also won a Grand Slam title in the juniors. And um, yeah, that's probably a more um, similar sort of history and um, yeah, just the way they've been developing. But yeah. Um, I'm I'm so glad that I managed to to see that live and really one of my best experiences watching tennis hands down. And uh, the other semi finalist Flavio Cobolli. Um, I talked to him after the quarters win over Radu Albot. Let's maybe just get it done now. So, uh, you've recently made the final in Olbia on hard courts. This is a semi final indoors. These results not on clay are sort of new to you, right? Yeah, it's new because uh, I obviously I prefer clay so. Uh, but uh, I I can play good also in the hardcore and you you can see the the result the result in uh, in the last month so I'm really happy and looking forward forward for the for the next one. You've qualified for the next gen finals. What do you think of that event and how excited are you to, to play? It? Yeah, I'm really excited. I I want to go there as soon as possible because I want to see how it's going. Um, so uh, that's it. You said you want to go there as soon as possible. Does that mean that Valencia next week it's it's off your schedule? Or? Uh, I don't know. I have to to <laughs> to, to talk with my my in my team. So uh, let's see in the in the few in few hours. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck tomorrow. Yeah, and I think Flavio Cobolli is the only player other than Marterer who returns to the Challenger podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we talked to him, well, I talked to him in Sakesh Fahervar earlier this year in March. And uh, yeah, it's also funny to just think about how in Sakesh Fahervar he was basically saying that, you know, it's more, it's the most important to uh, just feel, um, just have fun on the court again and sort of get out of the dark place that he was in after the end of the 2022 season. And now he's in the top 100. He's going to play the next-gen finals. So, yeah, I'm very glad that Flavio did that. Um, I actually, like, always had the belief that this will happen at some point. He will break the top 100. He is, um, I think, more um, skilled in attack and also just more um, sort of talented as a shot maker than people think a lot of the time, I, I, I would say that. But um, still, that bounce back season that was going to be this good, I definitely didn't didn't think that you know that the extent of it was going to be that high. And um, also recently, he is actually, and we we you know I mentioned that to him here in the interview, that um, he is actually making runs on other surfaces as well, like not only clay, right? The final in Olbia, where he where he played a couple of ridiculous matches against Morchan and Lestien, then. A bit of a disappointment in the final against Jacques, but still. And um, Danderit, you know, semi-finals, that's great for him. Uh, but I guess the main problem against Marterer was in the semis. That, like, against the wide array of serve plus one forehand points that Marterer can bring in right now, Kovoli just doesn't really have that s- sort of response. And, um, yeah, he's just so patchy of the ground. And sometimes you can escape with that, especially on clay, you can escape with that because, well... You don't need to be maybe as, um, I would say, you don't need to be as cautious, you know, holding and keeping your serve or like not falling behind. You can easily recover if you just, you know, catch fire for a few minutes. 
but here that fire will be easily extinguished by someone like Marterer who's just gonna blast a few good serves and survive the game, right? So Koboli did well against Pai, did well against Albot, guys who also don't possess the weapons really on indoor courts. I mean, I know Radu is a good indoor player, but you know, he doesn't have the serve that Marterer or, you know, any player like that can, can bring in, right? He he is also definitely a, a more Koboli-ish competitor in that regard. I mean, they have very different games. <laughs> That's actually not true at all, but... You know, I, I just feel like there is a correlation, certainly, uh, between uh, Koboli performing well against Albot and Bai, but then coming up short against someone like uh, Marterer. And uh, I think it was fairly predictable as well that this semi-final was not going to be competitive. Maybe not that it was going to be this um, no, not competitive. I was also a little surprised that his first serve wasn't doing, like, any damage against Marterer, because against Albot, actually, and against Bai, I felt like like Flavio has a pretty underrated first serve, I would say. Maybe he's just, you know, not too good at just sort of performing behind it, right? He, yeah, the, the plus one forehand or like the uh, attacking options in general, he is definitely a very dynamic shot maker and can just end points at will. But yeah, it's just so streaky. It's just so up and down that uh, in the long run, it does end up hurting him quite a lot, I feel like, on these courts. But yeah, even getting the semis here is huge. And he's going to play the next gen finals. He withdrew from from Valencia. Um, I actually wonder if that's a good decision because he is like not exactly certain of making Australian Open qual uh, Australian Open main draw, in my opinion. Um, currently in the live rankings, you've got him at number 100 even. Uh, and that's because Diaz Acosta won Montevideo. Well, a bit of a spoiler, but you guys probably knew that already. So... Yeah, I don't know if he's actually going to be safe, if especially if in the next few weeks, you know, guys like Barrios Vera, Tabilo, and know, Kovacevic, Dakworth, Rodionov, you know, if they do well, he might actually be in trouble. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see about that, but I'm actually not sure he's going to make the Australian Open main draw, and then we're going to revisit this decision not to play in Valencia after all. But of course, I, I understand why he did that. He said in the interview that he's very excited to, to play the next-gen finals and wants to get there as soon as possible. Of course, that wouldn't be ideal preparation to go from Danderit to Valencia to play on clay and then next-gen finals. And in Saudi Arabia as well, which, you know, is quite a while, uh, quite a long while away from Spain. But yeah, we'll see if that decision doesn't come back to bite him a little bit. And uh, yeah, then we also have to talk about some quarter finalists. Let's start with maybe David Goffin. I thought that maybe there was going to be this ridiculous all Belgian sort of generations clash between him and uh, blocks in the semis. But Goffin actually lost to Nakashima, which of course was a very high-profile quarterfinal in the first place. And uh, yeah, um, let's maybe just start with the interview. This was after he beat Marvin Miller in the uh, opening round. So this is your last event of the season and uh, basically the last chance to secure the Australian Open as well without the main draw, without the qualifying. Is it the big goal for you this week? Of course, uh, not only because... Uh, I'm looking for something more than just uh, be part of the Australian Open. I try to find my uh, my level again, 
physically, tennistically. Uh, I'm really close to uh, to find it again. Uh, that's the the main goal at the moment. Uh, I played well in Bergamo, really close to have the title with a good level of tennis. And then I try to keep keep going like this this week, and then we will see. Of course, <coughs> if I play well, uh, the consequences will be that I will be in the main draw, of course, in Australia. But I'm focusing on uh, every step, every match. Um, I'm happy of the, my first round here. I try to continue and win some more matches to uh, to reach my goal and to, to play some good tennis. But the goal is to uh, to finish strong this week and. Uh, and uh, be back in 2024. Uh, as you said, you've had some very good performances, Bergamo, especially that first set against Draper, I think. Do you think like the main thing missing then is the consistency of these peak performances? Yeah, but the consistency comes with uh, a lot of work, uh, uh, everything that you put during practice uh, and also during matches with your team and everything. and. Uh, I think now it's 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 working. It's coming back. Uh, I worked uh, physically to mm-hmm. to uh, to come back and to feel like 100% with my knees and everything. So that was the first thing. And when you don't even think about your knees and uh, your body, that's already a good point to be focused on your tennis and mm-hmm. to work hard. So that was the case the last few weeks. And then um, uh, it's not a miracle if. The tennis is coming back, so uh, so we're trying to continue like that, and hopefully uh, there will be more wins and uh, the confidence and the consistency will come. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it was just cool to, I guess, to to see someone like David Goffin, you know, a former top ten player, the challenger, also get him on the show. Uh, very nice guy, and uh, yeah, I I think generally his level this week was a little disappointing to me because in Bergamo he already seemed to have gotten something going you know with the Molchan with the Lyal wins and especially the way he played in the opening set against Draper which I think I even mentioned in a question to him uh, that you know he was in god mode there and he kind of didn't follow it up because even if he made the quarters here and actually the beating Kachmazov like that's a pretty tricky opponent at the moment but I just thought that Nagashima Gofen was like a 50-50 match, you know, that they both showed such good tennis in Bergamo. And also Gofen, you know, he, he was so positive, right? In the interview, he said that, like, the tennis is coming back, definitely. And, um, yeah, this week he was a little... Well, just a little off-color, I would say, in general. Uh, it wasn't the peak mode Gofen that we saw in uh, the first set of the final against Draper, against Lyal in, in Bergamo semis. It was more so just like hitting some ridiculous shots every few minutes. But overall, it was really inconsistent. And also, um, the one against Nakashima in the quarters, yeah, I just feel like it was a similar case as how Nakashima beat blocks. Where like It was kind of hard to tell why Gofeu is just on the back foot constantly. Uh, on the back foot, not even necessarily in terms of the points, you know, and how they were played out. But a lot of them were actually ending up with him on the back foot. But also, yeah, just in terms of the scoreboard, it felt like he's constantly under pressure. But I think that was really Brandon's first serve, being being super strong on the day and the whole week, really, other maybe than the final. And um, also, yeah, just the consistent weight of shots, the, the fact that he had more on every stroke than Goffin 
who of course is like a little bit lightweight type of player, right? I mean, he is basically relying on his early timing and it's beautiful, but against someone like Nakashima, it was really hard for him to execute that sort of game. And the same actually with blocks, yeah. So um, good run still, I mean, quarterfinals, you take it, but I think for him, that probably means that probably means that he won't be uh, in the Australian Open main draw, which, as he, as you, as you heard him say in the interview, isn't really like the biggest goal and like you know the the what the thing that he's focusing on. Um, he is more so still oriented, you know, looking at the long term uh, possibilities, and then yeah, we'll see how two thousand twenty four goes for him. He's actually gonna be thirty three very soon. I didn't even realize, I thought he was like more like 31 or something like that. So, you know, time is running out. Uh, but I think, you know, he's capable of returning to like, what, top 50 or something. Um, probably, of course, not to the heights that he reached in 2017, for example. That seems like a foregone conclusion. But yeah, uh, I think um, top 100 next year is very doable. And then, yeah, maybe if he's just a little more healthy and... Um, just, just is able to produce his best level more consistently than he was this year. I feel like that still should be a possibility for uh, David Goffin, absolutely. Um, the other quarterfinalist, let's talk about Jakub Menschik. So another um, great junior, of course, Australian Open 2022 runner-up, that insane final with Bruno Kuzuhara. And honestly, this match that he played here in the second round against Majedovic, that was probably even more insane. <laughs> He went down 4-6, 3-5. And by the way, Majedovic was my pick for the title in Danderit, so obviously I did not get it. And um, yeah, Majedovic was actually in cruise control all the way until 6-4, 5-3. After the first set as well. Oh, actually, let's um, let's give Menchik the floor. Let's let's just start with the interview. <laughs> I mean, this is, of course, very hard to unpack. And, you know, how, what do you think was the key to this comeback? Uh... Yeah, it was really tough after first set. I I I thought that I thought that, uh, I, thought that I, I I was done in the moment because uh, I felt a big pain in my head, you know, the pressure in my ears and everything. So uh, I thought it, it, it's my end and uh, that I'm going home. But uh, then I took a painkiller, uh, started to do something in my mind. So in the changeovers, I took the physio. So uh, it started to be a little bit better and better. And during the second set and in the third set, uh, I I started to play my game. You know, after the second set, when I uh, when I was a little bit lucky, I went to the toilet, do something with my mind, and uh, then I uh, I started to play uh, my game uh, in the third set. You're gonna play Alexander Blocks. You were the, in the Australian Open final in 2022. He was in the Australian Open final in 2023. Do you guys know each other well from the juniors? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I know him, and he knows me pretty well from uh, from uh, young ages. You know, when we were playing under 12, under 14, the summer mm-hmm. cups, winter cups, and all this, all this tennis Europe tournament. So I know him very well. So it will be funny to play him uh, <laughs> again because I think uh, that. Uh, Last match, uh, it was like three, three years ago, so it will be good to, to play again with him. And after this event, you're also going to play the Davis Cup, right? Yeah. I mean, after the debut, which went pretty much perfectly well for you, uh, you're probably very excited to, to do that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, uh, I'm uh, really looking forward to to uh, to play again in Davis Cup, and uh, after that, uh, then it will be for me the, the end of the season. I'm not going to hold you for any longer. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 
Yeah, and um, as you can hear him talking about it, after the first set he took a medical timeout, he had some pressure in his ears apparently. Uh, I I couldn't quite tell, you know, from the stance what was happening, but yeah, they were massaging his ears more or less, or like his ear area, so I was thinking like headache or something like that. Um, And yeah, he managed to recover from that, Hamad sort of led him back into the match by missing two match points in the second set, and by the third set it was just a really good battle. Again, um, lots of high-quality entertaining rallies. It, it This match came right after Mute Blocks, by the way. So for a while, I really couldn't get into it. But by the end, I mean, what an experience as well. Because uh, Menshik eventually claimed his eighth match point, And I think it was after saving six or seven that Medjedovic got another chance to clinch it. <laughs> so it was his third, you know, but two he had in the second set. Um, 10-8 uh, deciding set tiebreak, just a ridiculous match in terms of the drama, but also the quality in the third set. And as a whole, I think Menchik, what he displayed to me in that match was a lot of ability to soak up the pressure of the opponent's power. Like Hamad was just blasting that forehand cross court and nothing was really happening for, for him. Like Menchik would just be able to get it back over the net with decent depth with decent <coughs> angle as well and just stay with him in these forehand cross-court exchanges and I don't think Majerovic really had an idea as to how to break out of them you know sometimes he can use the drop shot sometimes he can approach the net but he's like more so um, yeah I guess it's it's a part of his game that he hasn't fully developed yet and most of the time the court positioning wouldn't allow him to play the drop shot there um, going to the net probably would require a more risky forehand down the line um, but yeah, I I did enjoy that much, of course, and I thought it was a it was a ridiculously entertaining one as well, um, and um, obviously it took a lot out of Menchik because the next day he played blocks and only won three games, <clears throat> and I think it was like one four down in the opening set when I just knew that the match is over. Um, there was no way that Jakub Menchik was going to win that one. Simply, he, he didn't manage to recover from that one against Medjedovic. So, uh, rough for him, but he is playing the Davis Cup finals now. He had a ridiculously good uh, Davis Cup debut in September when he beat Lajovic and also won two matches in the doubles along with Pavlasek. So, I'm excited to see if he... Uh, well, makes the team. He's made the team, but if he appears again, you know, for the for the Czech side in the quarterfinals of the Davis Cup finals. And um, one more quarterfinalist, and then we also have one more player who was who lost in the second round. So uh, the quarterfinalist here is Maxim Kresi, whom I really wanted to get on the show already in Ismaning, but he lost to Max and Hans Reberg in the opening round, the for the um, in the battle of two former runner-ups. Um, and recently, in general, Kresi has not been winning much since winning since since the title in Ren in the middle of September, which was his return to the challenger level after like how many months? Um, Twenty or something like that. Yeah, no, eighteen. Sorry. So he returns to the challenger level, he wins a title right away, and we were we were all thinking, okay, so he actually will be like a force now, and he might make the Australian Open main draw. Yeah, no. Um, in his next 
how many, uh, let me count, seven events between uh, Ren and Danderit. He only won um, a match at one of these events. It was a quarterfinal, so he actually won two matches, but you know, he only won a match at one of these events. And um, yeah, I didn't expect that sort of a breakdown. But that happened, and he lost to Mutain Helsinki as well in the opening round. And uh, in Danderit, he beats Joris Delor. That was surprisingly comfortable, um, especially compared to their US Open qualifying match, where he couldn't break the Delor at all. And here he was actually constantly in uh, Joris's return games. And then he beats Damir Drumhur in a match that I also deserves a mention for uh, one of the best ones of the week. Actually, this the the interview that we have with him is after this uh, after he beat Jumhur. So let's do it now. So uh, you and Damir have very different playstyles, skills, attributes, yeah. but together it makes a very entertaining combination, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the opposite styles. Amazing, uh, amazing with passing shots, lobs, and type of player who will give me the hardest time at the net. So um, yeah, it was a very challenging, yeah, very challenging day. Yeah. You saved quite a few points, uh, quite a few big points with yeah. the massive second serves, which of course for you is like a first serve. Yeah. With a style like that, is it ever really truly like tough not to hesitate and just keep no, going? You have to go for it, yeah. Go for just it. trust uh, the process. Trust the spots you choose, trust the spots. And uh, <laughs> no, just gotta be smart with the spots and, and go for it. I work on my serve all day, every day, so uh, it should should be consistent even on a bad day so yeah is the main thing on your mind right now the Australian Open or are you still more focused on like long term goals long term goals yeah, mm -hmm. yeah long term uh, get to top 30 quick and top 20 top 10 top I ask because you're still top, signed yeah. up for the challengers in Japan right yeah, but yeah, just, yeah. just want to finish the year strong yeah, yeah I want to finish the year yeah. strong uh, it's been a difficult year I tried different things that haven't worked and uh, uh, but uh, the yeah it's just it's my best quality. I I'm resilient. I don't give up, and and eventually I find a way. Like I found a way to get to top 30 last year. I'll always find a way to to get to the top. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Congrats thank you. on the win. Yeah, and um, the the match against Jumhur, I think it was just a, such an exciting clash of styles, and also it was uh, played on this third court where I think the angle and sort of. Um, what was actually the best because the stands they were you know sideways to the uh, court as usual sort of pa parallel I guess and while I could watch theoretically I could watch Cressy um, sorry Cressy I mean the main court as well just like standing behind the court it would have been slightly inconvenient because like it was a um, you know, they, they had to sort of let you through there to that section and I could get there with my press pass but um, you know, the sort of regular crowd couldn't, whereas on the third court, everyone could watch that match just, just from behind the players, right? And I have to tell you, that's a beautiful angle to watch Seven Volley from. It just really makes you feel like you're charging the net. So, you know, it's like a first person view, you could, you could say. And also, um, it just very nicely exemplifies, shows the um, just the rapid nature of this playing style, you know, how quick the reactions have to be. And uh, combined with this variety-oriented playing style that Jumhur has, I mean, the hands that he has, I think that was such an exciting combination. And 
uh, one of the best matches of the week as well. It's just a shame it was a bit overshadowed by the double header that I mentioned on Thursday. But um, yeah, I loved every minute of Kresi Jumhur. Absolutely. And uh, Jumhur, of course, is a big complainer regarding line calls. So that was part of the match as well. But this time he actually had a few funny interactions with the umpire. So, uh, you know, he wasn't as irritating, I guess, as usual. And uh, Maximilian Marterer was, of course, the player who eliminated Maxim Kresi. And um, yeah, it just kind of paints the picture of of Cressy still being very much in struggle town despite the quarters here and despite the title in Ren. We'll see how well he recovers in 2024. Of course, it's such a weird playing style. And I'm not I'm not just saying serve and volley, but also the fact that he blasts his second serve right instead of his uh, well, basically hits two first serves. Uh, it's like such a unique combination that I feel like predicting how Maxim Cressy will do in 2024 is just impossible. <laughs> but of course, you know, he, he still has enough game, I think, to easily hold up at the challenger level, like in the long run, produce enough results in the long run. I just wonder, you know, if, if like top 30, if he can return there. Um, in, in theory, yeah, of course. On paper, I think so, but... Yeah, again, I'm I'm not gonna predict Maxim Cressy's results because it just feels impossible. And um, yeah, that one more player that I wanted to mention uh, definitely Arthur Ferry. He uh, made the second round here. He beats um, Mika Brunold and then loses to Maximilian Marterer. Let's get the interview done. Um, yeah, so since we still have you here in Europe in November, I'm assuming that you're not coming back to Stanford. Um, I'm still not sure yet. Um, I can I can go back in January. Um, I can go back in the spring as well, but most likely won't come back um, mm-hmm. until at least April, and maybe in April I'll come back for one just for this season. But um, no, right now I'm focusing on the pro and um, yeah, doing pretty well. So happy with myself. Uh, you're part uh, you're part of the main draw here as the uh, with the college accelerator program. Yeah. I know it's only been a few months since it's been implemented, but how do you rate this initiative? I think it's great. Yeah, it definitely incentivizes college players to uh, try play more pro tournaments, especially in the in the autumn, and um, incentivizes people to stay in college for a little longer. Because even if you know that even if you don't have a, a pro ranking, you can use these college rank these college spots if you do well in, in college. So. It's great. I've been using it, and um, I think it's a, I think it's a great idea to for the NCAA um, and the ITA to partner with AATP. And also, Asti, like some people say that with um, if you're not six feet tall, it's very hard to be a top like, top ten player, let's mm-hmm. say, in the modern game. How do you plan to sort of overcome that? And is that an issue at all? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, everything has advantages and disadvantages. Mm-hmm. I think um, I have to work around um, my height. I'm not quite as tall as the average uh, mm-hmm. top 100 player, so I'm going to try and return better than other guys and move better than other guys and try and outsmart them instead of just overpowering them. Thank you. Thanks. Good luck. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I, I especially wanted to uh, just confirm with Ferino what his plans relating to Stanford are. We've been talking about him on the show quite a lot recently because, of course, he gave us... Um, yeah, he just gave us the incentive to do that with the uh, great run in Orléans and then in especially in Wuerleron Le Captif where he made the final. We are all assuming, I think, that um, Arthur Ferry probably isn't returning to college. Actually, he might, it seems. 
but you know he's still unsure about that uh, but anyway uh, it was it was definitely quite fun to see just how much um, touch and you know the the hand skills as well that he has. I think a lot of the words that he said there in the interview about like trying to outsmart his opponents, I think that especially rang true when he played Marterer in the second round because it just felt like Marterer is just in such peak form, you know. And Ferry he felt behind the break in the opening set at first. And then he sort of recovers it by, yeah, just throwing in some uh, variety, throwing in some different spins, angles, and trying to beat Marterer like that. And it was working, you know, but after the opening set, it, it kind of seemed like it also took a lot out of Ferry to even get the first set that close. And after losing the opening set, the match was done. I think it was like 5-0 in, um, in the next set for Marterer before Ferry won a game. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've said a few times even before this year that Ferry is one of the most exciting collegians right now, at least the ones that I get to see on the Pro Tour, because, of course, as you guys probably know by now, I'm not really a big um, college follower. So, uh, you know, the ones that I see on the Pro Tour appearing in Challengers from time to time, Ferry was always really exciting to me. And uh, with time, definitely, there's been more that stands out right now about his um, game than the backhand that sort of wooed me at first. And of course, it's a ridiculous shot, but I'm just saying it's it's way more multidimensional than that. And also the serve that he gets while not being too tall, and he is a lot smaller than me, actually. I'm 5'11", I guess. Um, and uh, well, actually, I have to check if that's true. Because, of course, I'm not used to that system. Um, yeah, more or less 5'11", I guess. And he's definitely a lot smaller than me. But actually, for his height, I think he has a very good serve already. So maybe there's even more untapped potential there. And um, yeah, we'll see how, how his career goes on from here. But certainly very exciting that we finally got him in like a prolonged stretch of European challengers and he's actually holding up very very well so <clears throat> yeah and I think one more thing that I will mention from the Dunderit singles is also the opening round of Moutet and Gaston honestly it wasn't as crazy as you would think because you know Moutet Gaston everyone was expecting so much drama and like a full-blown circus and actually Moutet for a while was delivering that he was so frustrated but then he kind of calmed down, and um, in fact, at, at some points, I even thought that Gaston was a little too lethargic. And um, but yeah, still, you know, the the shot making, the hands on display, that was absurdly good, hundred percent. It was also fun to watch this as a bit of a coaching battle because you know, in in Hugo Gaston's uh, camp, you had Younes Elainaoui, the former number fourteen, I think who played a ridiculous match with Andy Roddick at the Australian Open many years ago. And in Mutez's um, camp, there was Petar Popovic, who was also a very famous coach. I mean, he's worked with Karlovic, Jumhur, Petkovic. So um, it was kind of fun to see these two guys, you know, clash uh, without actually being on the court against each other. Although I'd love to see an exhibition match between Ainaoui and Popovic. Popovic, I actually watched practice this week because he, he still practices with with Mute and uh, yeah, it was actually kind of interesting. He, he he has a bit of a, well, I don't want to say beer belly right now, but he certainly isn't as fit as he was in in his career. 
I think he got like 400 only in the in the singles rankings or something like that. Uh, but um, yeah, the forehand was actually quite cool to see um, when he was playing against Mute, you know, just, just trying to um, get him warmed up for the next match of his against blocks. Um, but anyway, uh, that should be it for the Dandarit singles then. By now the episode is at like almost an hour. So yeah, if you if you manage to survive all of that, congrats. There's still probably about 40 minutes coming. <laughs> but also, yeah, the Dandarit doubles. Honestly, I didn't get too invested in this event. Um, it was a weird draw because it wasn't even full. But at the same time, the first few seeds were, of course... Um, really strong. There was also Begeman Balaji, I mean the, the guys who were on uh, an eight match win streak and they weren't even seeded. But eventually um, they lost to Cash and Stevens in the quarterfinals and Cash, um, Julian Cash and Bart Stevens were actually the ones who won the title as well over Ivan Nedunhezian and um, uh, Vijay Sundar Prasanth. And um, Probably my favorite pairing, though, to watch this week. Well, maybe it goes for, like, two of them. In Gilts and Vasa, I think they were pretty underrated. Uh, Vasa especially, uh, maybe I've mentioned it a few times, but since uh, watching him in Helsinki 2021, I've had a bit of a soft spot for him. So I'm glad that he's getting some traction at the challenger level, even if it's just going to be doubles. And uh, Niklas Salminen's Noza, that, that was a pairing that I definitely found very fun. Um, both guys, you know, are really nice and like just sort of had good energy on the court and obviously good, you know, big serves as well. <laughs> and uh, but they lost to Cash and Stevens as well in the and the semis. Um, so yeah, that was that was the doubles in Dunderit as well. And as I mentioned earlier, we had one challenger 100, so that's what we are going to get to now. That was in Montevideo in Uruguay. And uh, Facundo Diaz Acosta won his fifth challenger title, fourth this year, and uh, he did that by beating Thiago Monteiro in the final, although the Brazilian retired. Um, yeah, so um, when it comes to how much watching I actually got done of um, of the other challengers this week, uh, you know, Danderit didn't hamper my ability to watch them, I guess, for the most part, because it was the only European one. Uh, but still, with the time zones, you know, with the fact that I was just spending so much time at the venue, it would be pretty hard. So, uh, I mean, of course, I saw the finals, uh, but there were a couple of events that, you know, throughout the week, I couldn't really watch all that much. And Montevideo probably was one of them. Uh, uh, Knoxville and, and Drummondville, uh, sorry, Knoxville, Champagne and Drummondville. I got more watching down there than in Montevideo and Kobe. But, you know, for, for what I know, uh, Diaz Acosta was actually kind of struggling at some points this week. You know, he saved three match points against Gustavo Haida in the semifinals. And um, one of them was like a really good point, a short, um, like, a, like a sharp angled forehand cross-court winner. There was also an ace and a plus one backhand winner. So a couple of really good serves there on the outside. And um, yeah, then eventually in the final, he, I think, had one of his best performances of the week, maybe one of his best performances of the last few months as well. Although I wasn't able to watch that uh, Pan American Games uh, title run that he had, obviously, where uh, he was, uh, you know, he, where he won the gold medal in the uh, singles event. And it might get him into the Olympics if Argentina won't have four singles players ranked. Um, you know, within the qualification criteria, 
It probably should, honestly. Uh, well, actually, you've got Serundolo at a very bias, potentially, right? So, yeah, it's actually not guaranteed, I guess, because Korea, well, Korea probably won't be there, but around like 60 in the rankings. But anyway, um, yeah, the, the one against Monteiro in the final, I think he actually started really well, very sharp attacking hitting. But um, then in the second set, the Brazilian slipped, hurt his hand and had to retire. But yeah, it shouldn't take away from, from how well Diaz Acosta played in the final, you know, at least in the first set. And he saved three match points in the in the semis. This is very important for him as well because he returns to the top 100, actually back to his career high of 93. So it could be it could be crucial and I think he will still play one more event after that. Certainly hasn't been recently in his form from the summer. He did get kind of mediocre and at some point. But yeah, this is, you know, this is of course huge. This is back on track. This is 100 points coming his way. And the aforementioned Thiago Monteiro in the final he beat Murkel Delian, Santiago Fabriguez Taverna, Camilo Ugo Carabelli and Ugo Delian along the way. So I think it was a very strong route. I've said it a few times, but like Monteiro since coming back to South America, since that win over Rune as well in Davis Cup, he just has been in a very good patch. And um, yeah, just recovered that form from um, last year, for example, when he won to 125s. I don't know if he's quite as good, uh, quite as good as that as, as back then. But he certainly is doing so much better than most of the season. And, you know, finally we're seeing glimpses of the Monteiro, vintage Monteiro, let's call him that. And um, I'm glad that happens. Uh, we'll see if he's going to be fine for Brasilia because he wants to wanted to finish his season there. But we'll see, uh, you know, about the hand injury. Um, Ugo Delian, one of the semi-finalists. I think just a very solid run for him, beating Roca Bataya, Olivo, Barrios Vera. Barrios Vera, by the way, was getting close to that top 100 debut again. Time is running out. But um, the win against Delian wouldn't have given him uh, the debut yet. He actually needed to make the final this week. Um, he, of course, lost in the quarters to Delian. And uh, yeah, Delian then went out to Monteiro in three sets in the semis. But that's a decent loss, of course. I mean, nothing, nothing you can really be too... Um, too angry about and um, Delian certainly is also finding some rhythm in this final part of the season which of course in the around the summer maybe um, yeah he was like barely winning matches around the spring summer I guess period but right now he seems to be uh, getting back on track as well and Gustavo Haida the semi-finalist certainly quite um uh, well, has to has to regret uh, at least one of these match points against Diaz Acosta where he was in the rally. Although, again, Diaz Acosta just played a very, very good point with um, a very risky finish as well. But Haide uh, still had a solid run here, beats Karu, Hokas, Bagnis. Still a big win, I guess, although Bagnis, you know, 2023 has been such a nightmare season for him. Yeah, and then Haide loses to Diaz Acosta. Um, nothing wrong about it, but of course, three match points, given that whole standpoint of, you know, him missing his first challenger final, now getting another chance to play here. Um, yeah, not ideal, but, you know, it's not like he hasn't made progress in recent months, so that's good for him, though. Uh, and then the... Oh, and my pick, by the way, for the title in Montevideo. 
Ooh, I actually don't even remember. So my pick must have went out early. Oh yeah, I picked Pedro Kachin and he lost to Max Hokas in two sets. I didn't watch that much. I heard from uh, actually admittedly a Max Hokas fan that was a ridiculous performance from the Dutchman. Uh, Dutchman. Um, yeah, I cannot really <laughs> tell you anything about that. Uh, but I had this feeling that Kachin maybe isn't the ideal pick. I remember saying that. Um, I don't know, you know, last event of the season, how much motivation he's really going to have, given that his ranking situation is okay. But um, yeah, I still decided to go for it because the draw was just so strong and also so even. So uh, Monteiro, I remember picking as uh, sort of mentioning as one of the ballsier picks that I could go for. Uh, but in the end, of course, it also wouldn't have given me the po me a point. Uh, when it comes to the doubles in Montevideo, actually another final between the top two seeds and a very high-profile one. Uh, Guido Andrazzi, Guillermo Duran, the challenger, South American clay challenger, juggernauts, they beat another South American clay challengers, challenger juggernauts, actually, in Boris Arias and Federico Zeballos. So, um, yeah, I think that one must have been really enjoyable. I didn't watch it, but uh, if, uh, if someone did, I'm, I'm pretty sure they loved it. Let's uh, go over to Champagne, maybe. Let's finish off the talk about the USTA uh, Australian Open Wildcard Challenge. As I said earlier, I think, uh, well, Alex Mikkelsen won it, but as he seems super likely to get into the Australian Open main draw automatically, it probably will be Patrick Kipson with a wildcard. And you might remember that Patrick Kipson also did it at Ron Garros. He had a ridiculous green play swing, and actually not only green play, because he also had this semi-final in San Luis Potosi on altitude clay, and he managed to earn a US Open wildcard, uh, US Open, Ron Garros wildcard. He lost to Radu Albot, one of the best draws you could probably get on clay at the French, you know, main draw, opening round. Let's just say for both players, it was a big opportunity. He didn't manage to perform We'll see how about Australia, but yeah, just a very clutch performance from Kipson again right when he needed it. Um, that was 30 points from his Charlottesville semi-final and now 75 points from Champagne. So he ends at 105. Nakashima third place he earned, ended at 89 because he had 9 from Brest, 30 from Bergamo and 50 from Danderit. As I said, Nakashima could have uh, been second if he beat Marterer. Uh, and Kipson actually had to, of course, later in the day, uh, defeat Alex Mikkelsen in the final to, to get there. Uh, as a whole, though, great win against Kovacevic in the quarters. Kovacevic always very dangerous at this venue because he is a former, of course, University of Illinois player. And that's where the, the event is held. Ethan Queen in the semis beaten as well by Kipson. That was also an important match in regards to the wildcard challenge because only one of them was going to stay alive in it. And then he beats Mickelson in the final. Uh, I think Alex was definitely running on fumes, but uh, I liked how Kipson just never really let him, you know, never really gave him a look at staying in the match or like, uh, even though he lost, I think, uh, his serve at 5-2 in the second set, it just never felt like Kipson is letting go because he was so ruthless with his forehand. And you could really see in the patterns of play and, just the fact that Mikkelsen didn't have that same sort of dynamic um, movement and the serve as well that he usually does, that Kipson uh, is just overwhelming him off the ground. 
and you know part of that was um, was just Mickelson being tired but at the same time Kipson did well to expose that and potentially end his second USTA um, Australia I mean USTA wildcard for a slam uh, which would be a really good feat, I think, for a player like Kipson, who before this year we never would have figured for that sort of run. And also he breaks the top 200. Alex Mikkelsen, by the way, um, I think by now probably should be safe for the Australian Open main draw, as I said uh, earlier, I think even when talking about Dunderit. He got another good run, this time beating Tomek easily in the opening round, because he also played Tomek in the opening round at Knoxville. Then he beats Fanslow, uh, Martin Dam. Uh, that was a that was a really good match, very entertaining, and had this point with three winners in eight shots. Uh, then he against Tito Androge, he's already struggling. He is already running low on steam, but he still manages to beat the Frenchman. But yeah, he just ran out of it by the time he made the final. Uh, we're gonna get Alex Mikkelsen in the Australian Open main draw either way, either with a wild card or with. Uh, just an automatic entry and um, yeah this season basically the same story as Ben Shelton in 2022 although I would be kind of surprised if in 2024 Alex Mikkelsen had the season that Ben Shelton had in 2023 and um, let's keep going we've got Ethan Queen as well in the semi-finals he as I said he was actually alive in the race for the UST, UST wildcard for a pretty long while I actually think he might have finished fourth because eventually he amassed two more points than Aiden Mayo. So, you know, it's not going to give you anything, but I think he might have finished fourth in the in the end. So um, that was a, a really good effort from him with the Charlottesville semis and Champagne semis. Uh, Queen, of course, is the player who won the NCAA championships this year, instantly decided to quit college and go pro. Uh, we figured that maybe a little too early, but the last couple of weeks he's starting to uh, tune in that forehand, and uh, we shall see how he continues from here. But yeah, the last two, the last uh, two, uh, last three events he lost to Mayo and Kipson in two semifinals, and also Tito Androge, semifinalist. Um, interesting choice from him to go for this uh, swing in the United States after a breakout season. He loses to Zhukayev in the opening round in Knoxville pretty easily as well. And in Champagne, he beats Durasovic, Holt, Kruger, loses to Mikkelsen, a match he easily could have won. So so that was much stronger from uh, the Frenchman for sure. I don't think he's playing next week though, so it was just a two-week swing, I think. And um, yeah, who did I have as my pick? I had Kovacevic, who lost to Kipson in the quarters. So not the worst, but... Perhaps not the greatest pick either, but you guys know I am very, very uh, stubborn. Uh, JP Smith and Sam Verbeek actually won the title and they also won Charlottesville. So they are 8-0 and zero this year as a pairing. They played a few times earlier in uh, their careers, but this year they're 8-0 winning the challengers in Charlottesville and Champagne. In the final, they beat Lucas Horv and um, Horve, I don't know, and Oliver o- Oconquo. Uh, so quite a surprising pairing for sure there in um, meeting them in the final. Uh, they had a massive upset earlier the, earlier in the week over Hagverdugo and um, Martinez. Yes, and let's get to Drummondville then, the other North American challenger that we had. Uh, this was won by Zizou Berks, his sixth challenger title over uh, James Duckworth, 6-4-7-5 in the final. 
And when it comes to Zizou, you know, this was another season filled with injuries, especially that one in uh, around Zug where he could only slice his backhand and for a while, I mean, his results just completely went away. Uh, but again, he had a few highlights, the Gstaad quarters, um, probably around June, May, April is where he had his best uh, part of the season, although disappointing both in at, at Wimbledon and at uh, French Open qualies was, was quite a big hit to, to, to Zizou this, this year, I think. And um, yeah, still ends, I mean, doesn't actually end. I mean, he still is playing two challengers in Japan, but he still has two challenger titles this year. And I think I'm just going to say it again. If he gets a full season when he's healthy, I think he will break the top 100. And this was just another nice week to, to show us that. I mean, in the quarters, he beats Dominic Kepfer, whom he lost to in the quarters at Calgary the week before. This time it's a drawn-out, long battle thriller that he manages to um, end up winning 7-5 in the third. He also gets a walkover from Vbensky in the semis, but he would have been a big favorite there anyway. And he beats James Duckworth in the final. I think it was a good performance. He was much more sort of lively on the offense, uh, definitely you know, so much more dynamic with his forehand. And I think he, he really managed to show that energy that he has in the final as well. And uh, James, speaking of James Duckworth, we, of course, have been talking about him quite a lot recently because he won both Playford and Shenzhen. Sixth final of the season, which you wouldn't really be able to tell. But yeah, he actually is fighting for a top 100 finish as well, which uh, just a few months ago, it didn't seem like a re even a remote possibility. But then he wins back-to-back -back challenger titles. And of course, that's bound to give you, um, like, grant you plenty of opportunities Let's see how he does in Japan, where also, like Berks, he is also traveling to now and, yeah, trying to secure that top 100 finish. Um, well, secure, trying to, yeah, trying to just return to that top 100 and secure it. Zizou probably is, like, way, 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 way uh, too far behind at this stage. Yeah, even if he won both Yokohama and Yokaichi, but Duckworth is actually in a pretty good spot to give it a shot. And um, in the semifinals, we had Litu who uh, I think this year generally has been a little exposed at the challenger level, but he's just done like enough to keep himself in the mix, let's say that. And of course, this run was also important. Uh, he beats Janvier, he beats Galarno, he beats Joao Souza. Actually, a set of very good wins, right? I mean, Galarno, you would have, would have expected him to be very dangerous in Drummondville at home. Joao Souza, of course, still um, a very threatening player on his day. But then I guess James Duckworth, Lito was kind of easily outplayed. And actually James Duckworth is the guy who beat him both in Calgary and Drummondville. And also beat him, I think, in uh, what was the event earlier in the season? Well, earlier in the season, in uh, October. Yeah, in Shenzhen. So basically James Duckworth uh, has just eliminated Lito in three of his last four events. <laughs> so a, big, a bit of a nightmare recently for uh, the fellow Australian. And Michael Vbensky, whom I mentioned that he gave a walk over to Zizou Bergs, uh, that's still a very good run for him, though. Uh, I remember in 2021, when I was watching uh, Vbensky live in Warsaw, there was still... Uh, no, was it Warsaw? Yeah, I think it was Warsaw, right? Yeah, Warsaw. There was still this moment when like, he um, actually had a pretty good track of progress, and like people were thinking, including myself, 
that he would hold up at the challenger level. Then it never really happened. He's had many, many uh, months of playing ITFs as well. This year, recently, he's actually trying to like qualify for challengers a lot, but most of the time doesn't make that much of a splash in, on the main tour. Uh, I mean, on the in the in the main draws of challengers. So this semifinal is actually uh, a pretty huge run for him. I'm just trying to see if he ever had one, but I would assume that probably not. I remember that quarterfinal he made in Warsaw, which I just I just mentioned, but I can't really remember him. Oh, actually, he did make a semi. Prague 2021, he lost to Oscar Otte. And also, yeah, I, I, I thought he might have done that. Uh, Prague in 2020 when he lost to Wawrinka. I wasn't sure if it was the quarters or the semis. But yeah, uh, since that great start to his challenger campaigns, uh, he has been uh, underperforming. And uh, maybe that's a maybe that's a good start. I mean, it, it was an interesting choice as well to play the Canadian swing. He lost to Shidek in the opening round in Calgary, but he made up for it with this um, run of beating Colin Marks, Liam Drugs, the winner of Calgary, and then Aziz Dugas. Shame that he couldn't compete in the semifinals. And um, yeah, also the doubles champions in Drummondville. We had Andrea Horanson and Toby Samuel beating Draxl and Hussey. So despite um, losing in the singles, Liam Draxl was still very much a factor in the Drummondville draw, but eventually it's the second seeds. Paulson Vbensky as well in the semis, one of the more interesting pairings. And yeah, with that, let's get to the last challenger that we are going to review. Then we also have three previews because there's just three challengers coming up next week. And let's begin with, I mean, let's of course get to Kobe first. And this is the, the last challenger that we had, 75 as well, as I mentioned. And we've had Duya Idukovic win his second challenger title. And that was quite a surprise, let me be honest, because Duya Idukovic, like his hardcore indoor results haven't been special. Um, not that he doesn't have an aggressive game, because of course he does, right? But I guess it's just the timing that is a little tougher for him to pull off. And um, yeah, especially with a game that sort of relies on super aggressive ball striking and like very low margin for error. I think, um, yeah, it just hasn't been a good combination with quicker courts or like maybe not necessarily quicker, but even yeah, low bouncing and slicker. Uh, but he actually manages to win the title, and and I think that was a that was a pretty surprising result for sure. He beats Esfatiu, Noguchi, Rodionov, big win. Also Tunglin Wu, and then Shimabukuro in the final. Um, played pretty well in the final, although it has to be said that Shimabukuro was struggling with a physical issue in the second set. Uh, basically, was injured, but. Yeah, Idukovic, um certainly a run like this is massively helpful to him. Someone today asked me on Twitter whether I think he can break the top 100. I mean, it's pretty clear that he has the top 100 weapons, but that's, of course, not enough usually, right? I mean, he's just so up and down and um, can get um, just frustrated at anything. I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't be anything uh, shocking if he did. But certainly this year, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's finally playing up to his potential. I think probably the, the sort of year that he's had, that this is more or less where I sort of thought he could get. But if he makes the next, you know, like if he, if he manages to actually take it even further in 2023, 
kudos to him. It, you know, I, w I would love to see it. And uh, yeah, this indoor run definitely didn't expect it. There was this one, uh, there was only one uh, ITF final that he played on hard, and it was back in 2018 in Tunisia. Otherwise, it's it's mostly just been clay throughout his career that he enjoyed success on, especially you know the higher the the level got. So um, yeah, great stuff for the twenty two year old. And Shoshima Bukuro, whom I mentioned, um, he was probably the player who was performing the strongest this week in Kobe. He beats Uchida, he beats Hong, he beats Mochizuki, he beats Nardi, all in straight sets, only needing two tie breaks, but actually loses to Aidukovic for the second week in a row because he lost to him in Matsuyama and also now loses to him in Kobe. Uh, he went up 3-0 with a double break in the opening set, but then it evaporated very quickly uh, as... Um, well, at first he was just rushing Idukovic really well, but then Idukovic actually hits a few ridiculous winners and like you know overpowers him for a moment. But I think in the long run Shimabukuro would have had a fine chance in the final. It's just that yeah, he uh, in the second set he just required physio attention on, the, on every changeover, so uh, it was kind of hard to play like that and definitely started impacting his um, ability to perform at the highest level. Uh, but yeah. That's not something that Aidukovic or Shimabukuro really could do anything about. Tuklin Wu, as I mentioned in the semis, um, yeah, it was actually a, one of his best runs of the year, right? I mean, he had a final in Tallahassee to the aforementioned Zizubergs, also semi-final in Granby, but semi-final in Kobe. And I think Tuklin Wu will sort of stay as this sort of a player who like can get fired up out of nowhere, grab a few wins, but consistency gonna be hard to pull off that sort of extreme first strike tennis that he brings on uh, that he brings to the court but yeah decent wins he beats Sweeney, Hassan, Jung and loses to Aidukovic in a tight battle and also Luka Nardi the other semi-finalist uh, definitely a story one of the stories of the week because by uh, making the quarterfinals he secured his Nito, um, not Nito, but um, ATP Next Gen Finals spot. The last, the seventh spot in the Next Gen Finals went to Luca Nardi. Uh, and um, I wonder if actually he will, like, is it possible that he will skip it? Because he could still fight for a top 100 debut. This, uh, I mean, for a top 100 debut and more, more importantly, top, uh, the Australian Open main draw. But like he would need to go really huge in these two uh, next Japanese events now, and you know he he was really tired by the semifinals in Kobe. But I guess the main thing for this week was to secure the next gen finals, and that's what he did. Of course, Darderi losing in Montevideo definitely helped. It allowed him to only have to go to the quarters to um, to secure it because then Mochizuki also wouldn't be able to catch him with a title. By the way, Mochizuki was my uh, pick for the title there. And I also didn't mention earlier that Zizou Bergs was the one in uh, Drummondville, so I actually uh, had one right in uh, in Drummondville. But uh, yeah, Nardi beat Ichikawa and Holmgren to get that uh, last Jeddah spot, and then Polmans uh, before losing to Shimabukuro, winning just four games, so quite a big... Uh, physical drop-off as well and, and in that uh, semi-final. Now let's get to match and upset of the week and as usual I posted the poll on Twitter. Let me tell you what the results are for now. So basically two matches that are tied are Blocks uh, Menchik, 
and uh, the uh, so blocks Menshik, blocks Mute and Menshik Medjedovic. So uh, that's um, that that's basically what I'm what I'm what I'm going for as well. I was thinking of including even three options from Dandarit in the poll, Kresi Jumhur, uh, but um, yeah, I mean I just wanted to give the other events a shout as well. But it's clearly Dandarit who brought the best matches here. Blocks Mute, uh, Menshik Medjedovic. Which one? I don't even know. Uh, Menshik Medjedovic obviously a lot more drama. All the match point saving, eighth match point converted for Menshik. He uh, so sorry for uh, yeah for Menshik. He saved three. Uh, but I think Mute blocks. Even though it was a seven six six one, uh, it really was a special experience. And um, maybe if I didn't see it live, I would have a different perception on it, and I would have chosen Medjedovic Menshik. But um, seeing it live, it was really um, something kind of otherworldly to w witness a performance like this from a very talented youngster against a player who also has, well, because even more, you know, shot making potential and like the, the rallies that they were playing in the at the end of set one, uh, just absolutely astonishing. And uh, when it comes to upset of the week, let's chat about um, the ones that we had. And is there anything really that is worth mentioning about in Danderit? Probably not. Hokes over Kachin, maybe. Gian Meza over Darderi, that, that, that is supposed to be a big upset, really? Nah, I'm not buying into that. Gian Meza is way too good for that, I think. Rodriguez Taverna over Tabilo was a pretty decent one, I agree. Um... Yeah, no, Miyoshi over Heck, no, not really. Um, Urbanski over Drax, I think, given that Drax was coming off a title, no, not really. Uh, Benjamin Locke was actually losing, was a pretty big surprise to Thomas Benjamin George, a 20-year-old from Canada, but I think a collegian as well. But yeah, Benjamin Locke losing at the challenger level, I, I'm struggling to kind of call that an upset, if you know what I mean, most of the time. I know he's had a good altitude clay run, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of hard to pick anything. Um, I picked Pedro Kacin to win the title in Montevideo, so I could be going for Max Hokes, but well, for one thing, I didn't know that it was going to be Max Hokes facing him in the opening round because Hokes advanced from the qualifying. I don't know if I would have picked Kacin. As I said, I didn't have much confidence in the pick in the first place, actually. So yeah, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Uh, I think I might just have to go for... Oh, actually, and there's also this one. Olaf Pichkowski beating uh, Andrew Paulson. Yeah, I'm going to go for that. Um, I think after Olaf's performance in the qualifying, where I was like a little disappointed with how easily he went down to Ketzen, Ketzen, Ketzen I don't know how to read his name. Uh, you know, the college player, Alexander from the States. And um, yeah, then he draws Paulson in the opening round and I, as a lucky loser. And I was like, yeah, there's no way he beats him. So I guess this has to be my upset of the week then. Uh, but actually Olaf fared quite well against Kepfer. So maybe he just needed, uh, you know, in the second round then. So maybe he just needed a bit more time on the Drummondville courts or something like that. But yeah, his win over um, Andrew Paulson is going to be my upset of the week then. And with that, we have finally arrived at the preview stage. And as you guys know, there are only a few more challenger, uh, weeks of challengers left. 
actually just two of them. And um, now we only have three events. We are going to be back to four for the last uh, week of the season, but now we only have three. Two of them are Challenger 100s. We have a Brasilia Hardcourt event, a Valencia Clay one, and there's also a 75 in Yokohama, uh, continuing the Japanese swing. Let's start with Brasilia, um, which is this weird... Well, every single uh, year since 2021, we've had this weird um, South American hardcore event at the end of the year. Actually, well, in 2021, it was Rio de Janeiro on the courts of the where the Olympics were held in 2016. In 2022, it was Temuco. And this year we have two of them, Brasilia and, Temu and Temuco. So it actually made it easier for some players who can play on hard courts to get there. So we have like Kovacevic in the main row, uh, Moreno Dalboran, Bernie Tomic. We'll see how he does. But yeah, the last two seasons, it was an even weaker draw because it was just a hardcore event full of clay specialists from South America. And this year it's it's true to an extent, but there are certain high points of it, you know? And and yeah, that's, that's why it, it's not quite like that anymore. So basically in Brasilia, we have the top seat. Uh, this is the, this is by the way, um, an event that I think was last played out. Yeah, in 2021, but back then it was on clay courts. So um, yeah, we cannot really say that Federico Coria is the defending champ because it was just a different surface as well. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna ignore that and say that there's no defense, <laughs> that there's no defending champ basically. And yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, Christian Garin is the top seed facing Orlando Luz. Then one of them can play Reis da Silva or a qualifier. We've got Moreno Dalboran, who I think should get a lot out of these two events. You know, good scheduling for him. He plays Puccinelli d'Almeida, though, and that doesn't have to be easy in the opening round. And then Ribeiro or Rodriguez Taverna. I love this one, Kovacevic Fonseca. I mean, I, I, I wish they didn't play each other almost, but I also want to see their match. Kovacevic uh, needs like a title and let's say a quarterfinal in the other Brasilia Temuco event to fight for a top 100 spot. And I think he actually might pull it off. He's definitely one of the favorites in, in both events, uh, just because, you know, of how clay heavy this draw is. Then you have Casanova Buruchaga, uh, Locke Olivo, and Guido Andrazzi is the AFC is playing Tristan Boyer. So actually a very good round one as well. Andrazzi won Temuco last year, so the other event like this. Um, Tiago Monteiro, sixth seed, plays a qualifier and then one of the uh, other two qualifiers. So Tiago Monteiro, I don't know if he's going to play after Montevideo, but for now he's still in the draw. We've got Tomic playing Crawford. I actually think Tomic could be could go deep, but Crawford opening ground isn't that easy. Um, then one of them will face Vashro or a qualifier. There's Tirante Bagnis opening ground. I guess Tiranta should be the favorite on hard now. Clear uh, Junior plays a qualifier. There's Haider Barrios Vena. That's a tough opener for both players. And Barrios Vera, of course, really needs the points if he's going to secure that top 100 debut. Since, uh, yeah, soon enough he's going to run into that 2023 part, uh, first part of the season where he's actually defending points, unlike in the second half of this year. And uh, when it comes to the qualifying, we also have Alejandro Tabilo, who is actually the second highest ranked player in the field. But he didn't sign up for the main draw, he only signed up for the qualifying. 
he's gonna play Rubin Statham tomorrow. I expect him to, or tomorrow. I'm recording this like 3 a.m. in the morning, so um, oh, basically today for me um, on Monday. And um, yeah, Tabilo Statham, I'm expecting him to qualify. There's Gonzalo Bueno as well in the in the uh, qualifying. Mateus Alves recently got a few nice wins. Romboli, by the way, beating Dan Adolfo Daniel Vallejo. Fernando Romboli, the double specialist. Wow. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's uh, let's think about who's gonna win this. And I think I already sort of hinted at it maybe last time that I'm actually gonna keep picking Kovacevic for these titles. I feel like he can win one of Temuco or Brasilia, uh, try to get to that top 100 or like the Australian Open main draw range. So yeah, that's what I'm going for. The other contenders for me, well, the bottom half is kind of weak. I wouldn't ex I wouldn't be surprised even with like a Tiranta final, just because he has a very good serve and while it's not altitude still, I, I, I think he might have a very nice chance to, to get there. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually like that quite a, that chance for him quite a lot. But if Tirante gets to the final and then, then has to play Moreno Dalboran, Garin, Kovacevic, Androzzi, one of these guys, I think he would still be the underdog in the final. So that's why I'm not picking him. And yeah, I'm, I'm a little afraid of Joao Fonseca and, you know, I want Joao Fonseca to do really well because he's such a talented junior and I think he's, he's one of these ridiculous talents like blocks as well. But um, yeah, we'll see if he's ready to tackle on Kovacevic. He was just at the NITO ATP finals, right, in Turin as a sparring partner. I actually haven't seen Fonseca. No, I, I, I have seen play, playing on hard courts, but I mean... Uh, in the in the juniors, I guess. I guess on the pro tour, I haven't seen him on hard courts yet. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if he's ready for that yet. We'll see. Kovacevic certainly a little disappointing the last couple of weeks, but he had glimpses. And uh, yeah, if he can play like he did in Shenzhen, uh, that you know that challenger he won over Nuno Borges, and actually he didn't lose lose in Shenzhen even because he withdrew with the with a flu before the semis against Coleman Wong. I think he could win this title, yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna go with Kovacevic. I'm gonna be stubborn on it. Yeah, and let's get to Valencia, the other challenger 100. Um, Oleksii Krutek is the defending champ, uh, but the top seed is Roberto Bautista. Good, making one more challenger appearance this year, playing against Andrea Vavasori. We'll see how he does. Then Gakov or Pellegrino await him. Moleker plays Morchan, and then Nagal or a qualifier. Let's see how Nagal does after that um, Helsinki, br brilliant Helsinki run indoors out of nowhere. I'm surprised that Maximilian Marterer is still in the draw. I wonder if he might withdraw, given that he won Danderit and like has a, such a good ranking situation already, but we'll see. Plays Daniel Rincon. And then Landaluce or Andujar, that's a battle of Spanish wildcards. And it has to be mentioned by me here that Pablo Andujar is finishing his career. So definitely next week we are going to mention him um, just you know a little more talk about his challenger achievements and talk about how he did this week whether he beats Nandalusa or not I mean this year has been pretty horrific for Andujar I think he's won like one or two matches and he hasn't played in a while so um, yeah the expectations aren't too high Elias Immer plays Pedro Martinez and then Taberner or a qualifier and in the bottom half we have Gaston Mayo a French clash then Brancaccio or a qualifier for either of them 
We also have Ramos Vinolas playing Trunjaliti, and by the way, Trunjaliti just won a 15k in Valencia this week uh, over Jimeno Valero in the final. We've got Gianessi playing a qualifier. There's also an all-Italian clash between Fonini and Bonadio. Fonini, the eighth seed here. Oriol Roca Bataya plays Josef Kovalik. And also Bernabe Zapata Miralesh is the second seed here. So a pretty high-profile draw as well. He plays a qualifier and then a qualifier or Mute. I would love to see Mute against Zapata Miralesh. That's that, that sounds like craziness. And when it comes to the qualifying... Um, there are some interesting names. Uh, Alvarez Varona beat Justino and will play Damas. Of course, Alvarez Varona on a protected ranking. He's had a year that, you know, he, he has barely been healthy. And uh, I, I wish that he gets a good run here, but who knows. Yevseyev plays Caruso. Krutik Janvier. These are, these are good. Um, Krutik, the defending champion, as I mentioned. So he, he is actually in the qualifying here. Morocanias could be a qualifier that does damage for sure. Andreev Squire, um, yeah, sure. Uh, also another good final qualities round. So uh, yeah, basically it's it's gonna be really competitive in here. So I I, I enjoy this uh, I enjoy this qualifying draw for sure. I might catch a few final qualifying rounds tomorrow. But anyway, let me think about who's gonna win it. Yeah, Marterer, of course, not a consideration, given that he is going to be flying over from Danderit, if he even plays, because as I said, I'm not sure about that. I think Bautista good, probably, at this point. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I trust him to win five matches. It's actually kind of hard to pick anyone. I mean, can Ramos Vinolas lose to Trujaliti? I think he can. But I, I'm kind of going towards Ramos Vinolas, to be honest with you. Um, he's also like on the verge of a top 100 finish. He did play the indoor season a little bit. And he was actually quite decent too. But yeah, I guess that's just the fact that, you know, in September when he started playing challengers more, he was actually getting good results. He was like getting semis, quarters. I think I'm gonna go with Ramos Vinolas, although I am I am aware of the danger that Trujaliti can pose after winning that 15k, and also not a run that he will be like very tired after the final against Jimeno Valero was six love six two, so I'm gonna go with Ramos Vinolas, but it's it's not much confidence really for me. I, I yeah I'm I'm not confident in this pick, but I'm gonna go with Ramos Vinolas. I just don't really see a big favorite or like. A certain player that would be very favored here. Um, Zapata Mirage is in a pretty tough section, I think, with Mute in the second round. And yeah, just this sort of random one off clay event at the end of the year. I think sometimes it just doesn't work out too well for players like that. Zapata Mirage, Bautista, good. I think we've seen it in the past. So yeah, I'm gonna try Ramos Vinolas, but not sure about it, about it at all. And the last event that we have is in uh, Yokohama. Oh, and I actually see that Maxim Kresi has withdrawn. So we're not going to get Maxim Kresi in Yokohama. But we are getting Yosuke Watanuki, the top seed, playing Yusyusu. Then uh, Tungdin War, a qualifier. Then we have Ridi playing Noguchi. By the way, Ridi was also another player. I watched him and Derrit, and he is like really running low on time in terms of trying to get to Australian Open qualifying. Qualifying, yes. 
I mean, at the beginning of the year, of the year, I would have told you he probably will make the main draw at the end of the year. But well, and then uh, Ridi plays Noguchi against Mac, uh, then McCabe or a qualifier. Uh, Michael Moe is the third seed playing Ekaragui. Then Blanca Noir a qualifier. This is an interesting section because you've got Nardi playing a qualifier, Berg's playing a qualifier, and they can meet each other in the second round. Berg's Nardi would be pretty huge. That was the Mallorca final last year, right? So uh, yeah, that that really would be quite huge. Mark Polman's playing Cem Ilkel, um, then Jason Jung or Yuta Shimizu awaiting him um, or Ilkel. Um, we've got Stenek Kolash playing James Duckworth. Duckworth, the fourth seed, also flying from Canada. Altuk Celik Bilek, Coleman Wong. I think that's a pretty exciting one, although it starts in like 110 minutes from when I'm recording this at 5 a.m. my time. So yeah, I'm not going to be watching that. I'm going to be sleeping. <laughs> and uh, we also have the, you know, the, 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 the spot where Cressy was, just a qualifier there now, who's going to face Andres Martin, um, Litu, Rei Sakamoto, Mamura, and then this is a good one, uh, Rodionov Songchan Hong at the bottom of the draw. Uh, certainly uh, an enjoyable round one match. Um, qualifying maybe Uchiyama if he makes it over Yun Seong Chung. Oh, Yun Seong Chung had a pretty weak year. Um, I haven't seen him in a while. Uh, Fonio, Jessica, Hongren, or oh, Hongren if he qualifies, that he could be dangerous. But yeah, uh, in general, probably not looking at the qualifiers. So the main question for me here is can I stop myself from picking Watanuki to win the title? And of course, with Watanuki, the issue is that he's so streaky and he can play Ridi as well in the quarters. He can play Mo, Bergs, or Nardi in the semis. So I think I'm actually... Well, if, if I saw a pick which was like really strong in the bottom half, like for example, a Cressy, I could go for Cressy here. I really could. But Cressy is out. So... Huh. I think I guess well, I will just stick to Watanuki, but um, if he needs to play like Tunglin Wu, I mean Su opening round, Tunglin Wu second round, quarters Ridi, and then semis Mo, Bergs or Nardi, this is a really tough draw for, for the quality of the whole field sort of overall. This would be a very tough draw. So I'm not sure about that, but um, yeah, that's what I'm going to try. Uh, but um, I certainly understand if someone wants to pick someone from the bottom half. It's just that I don't really see that much of a contender. By the way, we might get another Coleman Wong, James Duckworth. <laughs> How exciting would that be in the second round already? Uh, of course, they've recently played back-to-back -back finals against each other. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's, that's going to be it from me. And... Um, this was, of course, a very long episode, as usually when we get, as usual when we get um, the extra content from a challenger. Hopefully, I can get to you know at least as many challengers in 2024 as I did in 2023. And uh, as usual, I also wanted to thank you guys for listening, and especially if you stayed all the way until the end. It's been 94 minutes of recording for me. I also have to add the um, add the interviews from Dundarit, so I think the episode will in the end total at like 107 106 minutes and uh, yeah you're a chump if you manage to make it through that so anyway uh, i'm gonna meet you guys in seven days when i'm gonna discuss the events of yokohama brasilia and valencia 
for our sort of penultimate uh, challenger week of the season. I'll see you guys then. Bye.